Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fellowship is so delightful. Isn't it? Since there's no place to go, how's it go? Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. That's right. Make it go, make it go, make it go. I need a toe, I need a toe, I need a toe. What did you say? Ten? Ten toes, yeah. I was meaning the kind you needed a chain for, but still. All right, we are studying Christian evidences, and we started in last week with a... I for, forgive me for using this thing, because it's more loud when I look down like this. But um, our headpiece, Garth Brooks, Britney Spears mic, is... On the fritz a little bit. It's been popping. I don't know if any of y'all have noticed that. So we're, I think they're ordering another one. But in the meantime, we're making do. So we have been talking about how we got the Bible in our newest segment of this study. And last time we started into the ways that the Bible's been written to us. And we talked about in the Old Testament that it was written on, you know, first God spoke and communicated verbally, and then there was the written word, and then we talked about the different mediums through which that was given, first stone, and then, of course, there was wooden tablets, and then papyrus, and then also vellum, and leather, and all of those things. And then last time, we talked about the Old Testament, how it was passed down, and the fact that the English Bible and the Hebrew Bible are the same, they're just ordered differently, and today we move into a discussion of the New Testament. The New Testament came into being gradually also, although not as slowly as the Old Testament. The Old Testament was over the span of many hundreds of years. The New Testament just over a a very brief 150 to 200 year period that it came into being. The books were originally penned as letters to individual churches, as you know, or individuals. These letters are standout from others of the period and are preserved today as scripture for several reasons. Now, this is important to note because there is only one answer to the question, how do we know that the books in our Bible are reliable, that they're the ones that should be there? Because there has been some debate on that throughout the history of Christianity. In fact, this morning, those of you who were in early service, uh, we, we closed, did we close with A Mighty Fortress? Was that the last song we sang? No, well, we sang A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that was written, did you notice who wrote that song? Martin Luther wrote that song. A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And Martin Luther, you know, started what was known as the Protestant Reformation. And Luther, of course, nailed his thesis to the door of the church. And he, it's interesting if you study the history of that because... Many others had done that, but you don't know about them because they did what Martin Luther refused to do, which he was asked to come and discuss these in Rome. Well, others had challenged the church, and the biggest thing at the time was the selling of indulgences. Anybody know what the selling of indulgences was? It was, you know, Catholic theology believes in heaven, hell, and purgatory, 
And purgatory is the place where your sins are all cleansed. And, you know, if you were somewhat of a good Christian and a good person, your sins can be cleansed there. And you have to stay there for a period of time, uh, which is determined by how many sins you need to be cleansed of. And so the Catholics found a scheme that they could use that was quite financially lucrative, which is they could sell indulgences. So you could buy them for yourself or you could buy them for your dead loved ones. And in essence, the more money you paid, the quicker you or your loved one got out of purgatory and got into heaven. What a intriguing product idea, you know? But, of course, you can't find that in Scripture. You can't find purgatory in Scripture. You find heaven and hell. And you can't even find an idea that we have to be purged of our sin. Here's the thing. Everyone is going to either stand before God with all of their sins or with none of their sins. It's an all or nothing proposition. And it isn't really about how many sins you've committed. It's about, it's not a question of if you're a sinner, all have sinned and shall fall short of the glory of God. The only question is who pays for those sins? Either you pay for those sins or Jesus pays for those sins. That's the only question. But the Catholic theology had that wrong. And so they started this very corrupt practice of selling indulgences, and the church was getting rich, 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 rich off of this. And there had been a lot of, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest who said, this is wrong. It's wrong. And so he nailed a challenge, his thesis to the door, and challenged that and several other uh, points of Catholic theology. Luther only survived because when he was summoned to Rome to answer for this, he did not go. And he was protected by some very power, politically powerful friends in Germany. And so the Catholics couldn't get to him. And his message spread. The other thing that was interesting at the time is there was, of course, uh, the, the advent of the world's perhaps greatest invention for the advancement of everything in culture and society which, and intellect, which is the printing press. It was a new thing at the time. And he, Luther, translated the Bible into the common language of German. And he printed it on a printing press. No longer did you have to be filthy rich to have a copy of the Bible. Because it was in Latin, first of all. And you had to know Latin and be very educated. And only priests generally did. And so even if you did have a Bible, you probably couldn't read it. And who could afford it since they were hand copied? It took years of a person's life. So, now the printing press has made it available to the masses. In the process of all of this, Martin Luther had an issue with one book in the New Testament. Does anybody know which book that was? The book of James. Very true. The book of James. And his issue was is he had trouble reconciling it with another New Testament book, which was which book? Romans. 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 Because... The book of Romans, there would be other places he had trouble reconciling with, Ephesians particularly. But the book of Romans talks about that we're saved. What is the theme of the book of the Romans? Justification by faith. Justification by faith. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, For we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of yourselves, not by works, lest anyone should boast. But James takes almost a whole chapter to talk about if a man says he is saved by faith, I will show you my works. 
And he connects the idea of faith with works. Now, I don't think that that's difficult to reconcile because he said, how do you know of Abraham's faith? By the things that he did. He's not saying that we work to be saved. He's simply saying that a real faith is an active faith. There's, there's evidence of it. So you can't just say, I have faith, and that's good enough. Because even the demons believe and tremble. Faith is more than just belief. It's belief that translates into action. That's what James is saying. But Luther had an issue with James. And so he kind of wanted to take it out of the Bible. Thank goodness he did not prevail in that. Even at the time of the early church was compiling the approved letters, there were a few books that took longer to be recognized. James was one of those. Anybody know any of the others? First and Second Peter took a while. And Jude and Hebrews. Then the epistles of John. But Hebrews, man, that was a rough one. Why is that? Who wrote it? I mean, we don't, Priscilla. I doubt it was Priscilla. Um, we don't know who wrote it. I mean, some people defend a Pauline authorship. Some of that fits. Some of it doesn't because of the writing style and some of the Greek words. I mean, Paul's letters in Greek look very different than Peter's letters in Greek. I mean, it's like the difference between reading someone who went to Yale who writes a, a, a letter and someone who lives in um, Appalachia who, who, you know, didn't finish high school who writes a letter. I mean, it, you know, southern accent and all that. I mean, it's just a, it's different, right? Now, they're both in English, but you can tell somebody different wrote those two things. See my point? So... There's a lot of different, well, the Hebrew writing style is much closer to Paul, but it does have some difference from that. We don't, the, frankly, the Lord didn't reveal to us who the author is. Could it be Paul? Anybody heard of other suggestions of who it might be? Well, no, Priscilla was actually suggested by people. I know. Okay, well, I just want everyone else to know. I didn't just... Okay, uh, Ron thinks it was Priscilla. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Barnabas. I think Barnabas is a real possibility. Barnabas? Yeah. Anybody else? Some, some people say Luke. That doesn't seem very likely to me since he's not a Hebrew. Um, seems difficult that people would listen to him. But the writing style seems a lot like Luke. So it's possible somebody wrote it and Luke transcribed it. That happens at times. Luke wrote it down for him. I mean, we don't know. We just don't know. So that created a little bit of a controversy. Huh? Apollos. Apollos is a suggestion. I mean, there's, we just, the truth is we just don't know. And so it was more reluctantly added, as was James. Those were probably the two most resisted. But then some others, the letters of John, somewhat. Letters of Peter, somewhat. But finally, after a pretty short period of time, we have a compiled New Testament. Now, there are many, 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 many letters that are still preserved from the time that even claim apostolic authorship that are not included in your Bible. You can read them. I have full volumes in my office of the, of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. And you can read the Gospel of Thomas. You can read, um, what are some of the others? Help me. Gospel of Peter. Um, so, yeah, Philip, what? Yeah, 
Apocalypse of Peter, Shepherd of Hermas. Yeah, there's all these, and they're included. I mean, they're still available. We have copies of them today. But the New Testament church, for whatever reason, did not feel those were authentic, and did not, or even if they felt they were authentic, did not feel they, they rose to the level of inspiration to be included in the New Testament. And the way this process worked, and what I was getting at when I first started this little side note, is that the truth is, is the only way that we have the Bible preserved for us is through the providence of God. And it requires some faith. In other words, we, we have to, just like everything I've told you, we cannot provide proof, we can provide evidence. We have to have faith that God was involved in the process. I believe with all of my heart that he was and that the Bible we currently have was well-preserved. These are letters that were looked upon um, from the first as authoritative writing. Because of their authoritative status, they were received with respect and even read in public worship services. I've got a few verses to assign out. Who'll take 1 Thessalonians 5, 27? Thank you, Don. Colossians 4, 16. Thank you. Uh, Luke 1, 1 through 4. And John 20, 30 through 31. Thank you, Don. Whenever you get there, Don, 1 Thessalonians 5, 27. have this letter read to all the brothers. So they shared these letters for many, many years. For decades, they would share these letters. If someone was traveling from one location to another, after that church had read those letters and the people had become familiar with those instructions, that would be carried on to another church to benefit from it as well. Churches soon began to exchange these authoritative writings among themselves letting other brethren profit from apostolic instruction. Colossians 4.16. Okay, Church of Laodiceans, and you read the letter of the Laodiceans. Now that's interesting because, has anybody ever read the letter to the Laodiceans? Yeah, they they were distasteful. They were spewed out of his mouth in Revelation, but that's not the letter that is being referred to here. So we we don't have it. Right, we don't have some of the writings Paul had. Paul corresponded with the Corinthians a lot, and we have two of those. Okay. So that's kind of the process of how it came about. After the epistles came the need for authoritative eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Thus the gospels came into being. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Thee in order most excellent the Apophilus. 
mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Okay, so Luke wrote his gospel as the other gospels were written so that people would have an account of the life of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Uh, then we have John 20, 30 through 31. So John says, I wrote these. He said, there's more things that I could have written. Jesus did a lot more stuff. But these have been written so you have enough to have faith in him as the son of God who gave his life for you. So, of course, the logical outgrowth of the four gospels was the book of Acts, which told the story of the primitive church of the very first Christians and chronicled that for us. So the grouping of New Testament is as follows. There are five books of history, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. There are um, the books of doctrine from the book of Romans to the book of Jude, which is everything else besides Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And then the last section, which is the book of prophecy, which is, of course, the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. So that's how the, the New Testament came into being. Now, you can read, there's great documents. That, there's a book by F.F. F. Bruce that's exceptionally good about how the New Testament came into being. There's been a lot written on it. But at the end of the day, when you boil it all down, it requires faith that God, his, through his providence, was involved in the process. And here's the thing. We can trust. I'm not going to trust anybody who reads those Antinicene Fathers today and says, this one needs to be in there, and this one doesn't need to be, because... I'm going to trust the people who actually sat across a table from the Apostle Paul, who actually lived at times where they knew people who had seen Jesus in the flesh. I think they're more qualified to determine what should be in the Bible than anyone today, regardless of what letters are behind their name. Well, I would say I believe the New Testament begins in Acts, probably not Romans. And I say that not because it should be divided differently, but the New Covenant begins after Jesus dies and is resurrected and the church is established. So that's what they're meaning by that. Well, yeah, I don't know about what people choose to justify their, their theological, theological positions. But I do know this. Um, Jesus lived his life under the old law because he perfectly fulfilled the old law. He was, I mean, he lived the old law like no one else ever had because he had to be an adequate substitution for our sin. So where the wages of our sin is death because man could not keep the old law, Jesus... What he earned through his life under the old law is he lived it perfectly and deserved life so that he could substitute, he could swap his reward for ours and pay the price for our sin. Jesus lived under the old law. He lived under the old law. 
But of course, now we have the new covenant that came into effect after his resurrection. Uh, I don't know what these people are referring to. He was talking about, but uh, it's according to how you date. But a lot of people would believe, and I think probably justly so, that uh, Paul wrote his letters before the Gospels were written. Oh, probably so. Uh, I mean, Paul probably wrote Romans before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had even been. Well, Paul might have even have been executed by the time the Gospels were written. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's exactly what I believe, that God chose what books are in the New Testament, but he did it not through a, a, an overt act of miraculous intervention, but through a providential act of working through the early church. That's absolutely true. Back here, and then I'll get you, right. There's debate about it. I mean, I think a lot of the Antinicene fathers, some of those letters, some would say are authentic to the period, you know, pre-100. Uh, but then others would disagree. It, it just You get into so much of a, a debate, uh, not really theological, but historical, about trying to, you know, and it comes down to, They'll try to look at other sources who reference a person. But part of the problem is some of those letters, like the Gospel of Thomas, is some would say it's written by Thomas, the apostle, but generally it's believed to be fraudulent, you know, that it was written by someone else in his name. There, that's, isn't that true of the Gospel of Peter, too? Yeah, but second century writings that are fraudulent. And they also have Gnostic tendencies in them, because Gnosticism was the primary form of apostasy that was even evident in the first century, but became very, very prominent in the second century once the apostles were off the scene. Um, and you see a lot of interwoven Gnosticism in a lot of those. And Gnosticism is, I mean, we could talk about what that is all day, but it was a first century, uh, really a, a, an intellectual type approach to Christianity that wove in a lot of Greek philosophy and their ideas and, you know, basically Christ, it has to do with flesh and spirit and the end result was that a person, it didn't really matter what you do with the flesh because it's all about spirituality and Jesus, did he really come in the flesh? Remember, Paul will address that in some places. So that was, that's interwoven in a lot of those other writings. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, it was a, there was massive acceptance of a big portion of them. Right. But even the debatable ones had majority. Um, if, if, if there's nothing in the scriptures that was not agreed upon by the majority of churches and and Christians at the time. 
Uh huh. Uh huh. Anybody else? All right. So, languages of the Bible. The Bible is written in three distinct languages. You have Hebrew. The majority of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. It is very strange language to us in that its vocabulary bears no relation to English words, and it is written backwards. Anybody know what I mean by backwards? Yeah, you know, and so it's written backwards. It's difficult. Another oddity of the language is that it contains no vowels. That's kind of hard because like God's name that we is translated in the King James Bible as uh, Jehovah. And in most of your Bibles, it'll be Lord, all capitalized, Lord. That's how you can tell the difference between words when the word Lord is used with lowercase and where the word Lord is all capitalized. That means it's the Hebrew word W-H, Y-H-W-H, Y-H-W-H, which is, which is, how do you say that without any vowels? You know, sorry, Lord, I wasn't being mocking of your name, but that, but we don't have a way to say that. So they inserted some vowels, which most would consider more appropriately Yahweh, but the King James translators, since there's no J sound, I mean, no, no, why, you know, J sound, they would think, you know, some, like if you speak in Spanish, they don't have certain sounds and they substitute a different, what we would consider a different letter sound in English. So um, Javier, you know, is, is not an H, it's a J, right? So that, that Yahweh, they got Jehovah. Um, that's where you get the word Jehovah. But in Hebrew, there are no vowels, which is interesting. Uh, it's just a very, very different language. A person can get an idea of the Hebrew alphabet by looking at the numbering of the Old Testament section of Scripture in Psalm 119. It has sections, and that's breaking down the Hebrew alphabet in poetic fashion. That's Psalm 119. Second language the Old Testament was written in was the language of Aramaic. This language became the tongue of common man in Palestine after the exile in about 500 B.C. Uh, several portions of the Old Testament are in Aramaic rather than in Hebrews. These are some of them. Genesis 31:47, Nehemiah 8:8, 8, 8, Jeremiah 10:11, Ezra 4:8 through chapter 6 verse 18, Ezra 7:12 through 26, and Daniel 2 verse 4 through chapter 7 verse 26 are all in Aramaic. And by the way, um, in the Old Testament, there are in Aramaic rather than in Hebrew all those passages. Uh, Genesis 31 47, Nehemiah 8. Uh, an, an interesting verse containing both Hebrew and Aramaic response is in Daniel 2 4. Somebody read that one for us? Daniel 2 verse 4. Where are all my volunteers? Daniel 2 verse 4. Thank you, Sherry. Daniel 2 4.
Okay. So that verse has both Hebrew and Aramaic in it, in the original language, okay? You don't see that in English, of course, except that it mentions it. All right, and then there's, and Aramaic, by the way, was probably the spoken language at the time of Jesus by the Hebrews. It was the language they spoke to one another, although they all knew Greek, because everybody knew Greek at the time. It was a world language. Uh, huh? <coughs> yeah, that's coming. It's coming. Okay, Greek. Although the spoken language of Jesus was Aramaic, the universal language in the first century was the language of Greek. The Greeks' method of, con of conquest under Alexander the Great is... Has anybody studied ancient Greek philosophy or history or any of that? The Greeks really are a fascinating people to study because a lot of who our culture or what our culture is is taken from the Greeks. In fact, a whole lot of our, you know, even governmental institutions is based upon Greek democracy and Greek republics and Greek, you know, we... we our society, they are, are what's considered to be the birth of the Western mind and of the Western world. And everything Europe would become would be built upon that mindset, the Greek mindset. And then everything, of course, we in the United States, having come from primarily a European background, is still in the Greek fashion. Uh, for instance, um, there's a distinct difference in just basic thinking processes between the East and the West. In, in, any of you who are in business, how many of you are in business and you've worked a lot with Japanese or Chinese or Asian companies? Okay. Now, if you've done that, you know they have a totally different way of looking at stuff. Totally different. A great example of that is the two countries in the world with the, with the greatest baseball cultures. The United States, and what's the other one? Japan. Japan, baseball is big. I mean, they have professional teams just like we do. They're very skilled. That's why a lot of, you'll see pitchers in the MLB that come from Japan. You know, they got a lot of pitchers who can do that sidearm business. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. They have some great baseball players. And they love their baseball. But if you go to a baseball game in Japan, it looks a little different than here. The game's played the same. But their attitude about the whole thing is different. They don't tell you what the guy's batting average is. They don't tell you what his ERA is. They don't tell you those individual stats are not included or cared about. Nobody cares. They don't care. Because they're not about the individual. They're about the collective. They're about harmony with the whole. It was a real problem in World War II when... The United States was at war with the Japanese because it was difficult. I mean, there are entire battles where the Japanese fought to the last man. The last man. Being hopelessly outnumbered and assured of defeat because they wouldn't bring dishonor upon their people, upon the nation, because their individual lives didn't matter. It only mattered how much they were a part of the collective, right? What about in business? Anybody, surely in the car companies, you, some of y'all have worked with Japanese car companies, right? Nobody? Yeah, I mean, they, they operate differently too, don't they? Um, 
yeah, uh, let the UAW go to Japan and try to negotiate a, uh, first of all, the workers would run the union out because they're more concerned with the company doing well than themselves doing well. Way more concerned. I mean, in Japan, they'll work hours overtime. I mean, for free. And, be, and feel great about it because they care more about the collective, the company, than themselves. And it was Bill Gaw told me, Toyota's never laid anybody off, right? Yeah, Toyota doesn't lay people off. They, what do they do when they need to cut back? For everybody. CEO? Did, by the way, did Mary Barra, did she take a pay cut when all that happened? I mean, no. You know why? She's Greek. <laughs> She's not Eastern. Um, now, you contrast that with our culture, right? Our culture is much more individual, right? Individual. That came from the Greeks. The Greeks had their philosophers, particularly Aristotle, which was the most prominent and Aristotle developed something called virtue ethics. And what that basically says is every man should be the best man he could be and try to develop himself personally. Now, if you can be involved in organizations or other things, that's fine. But it's still about you being the best you you could be, individual. See what I mean? So that's not to say one's right or one's wrong. It's simply to point out that they're a very, very different mindset. The Greeks believed that their culture was superior to everyone else's culture. They believed. And in some ways, they were right. Frankly, we wouldn't be where we are today if they hadn't been that way. And the Bible couldn't have come and been translated in the way that it was. Because part of what made it the perfect time for Jesus to come is that it was preceded by the conquest of the Hellenistic culture of the Greeks. So the Greeks believed their culture was superior. Now the Romans took a totally different, they, the Romans took an assimilation mindset when they took over. Remember the Romans let Herod be king. They had client kings. In other words, they tried to let you have your own religion, have your own culture, just as long as you didn't rebel against Rome and you paid them taxes, that was good. Not the Greeks. The Greeks wanted to make everybody Greek in the whole world. So they would take their culture, which they believed arrogantly, unapologetically to be superior. They would take their philosophy. They would take their education system. They would take their, even their gymnasiums and their love of athletics and competition. We still have the Olympics today. It was started by the Greeks. They took um, their culture, they took all their, and their, most particularly their language. And they spread it to everywhere they conquered. And that was true for the span of about 400 years. So that all set up this circumstance where people, pretty much everybody who grew up in what was the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus that had been inherited from the Greeks by the Romans, it, even though the Romans wouldn't have demanded everybody have one language, they inherited a world where everybody had one language because the Greeks had demanded it. And everybody knew Greek, which made it pretty convenient 
for the Lord to come at that time. There are several factors. If you ever study this in school, they always go on about the, the reasons why the time Jesus came was the only perfect time in human history for him to come. Because of several things. Some of them were from the Greeks. Some of them were from the Romans. From the Greeks, particularly, one world language. But the Romans brought something. It wouldn't have been a perfect time during the time the Greeks were ruling. Because the Romans brought two things that were very, very, very necessary. The Roman roads. They were the first nation in the world that had a construction team. And in their construction teams called the Roman legions... They were full t- the f- world's first full-time army. I mean, every t- other time, it was like a militia, right? I mean, people, even the Spartans, who everybody was a soldier in Sparta, but they still had other jobs. The first full-time army in the world where people got paid just to be a soldier was the Roman legions. But when they weren't fighting, which was a good portion of the time, they had to have something for them to do. So they built these incredible roads. And I mean incredible because in some parts of the world, guess what you're still driving on today? The Roman roads. Still, right now. People still drive on them. I mean, 2,000 years later. Because the Roman legion were professional road builders and they did not. I read an article about how Roman, in the Roman legions, you could not have one guy doing the work and five guys supervising. I mean, maybe, maybe our construction companies need to look into Roman history a little bit, you know? But, it, so they did that. And then the other thing was the Pax Romana. Anybody know what that means? The Roman peace. During that period of time when Jesus came, and then, of course, until uh, you know, Rome started to be taken over by internal struggles and then the barbarian hordes hundreds of years later, you have a three or four hundred year period of time where there is absolute peace in the known world. Now, Rome is still conducting its campaigns against the fringe barbarians, but that didn't affect the people in in the Roman Empire. There was peace. Now you say, yeah, but there was a lot of persecution. Yes, there was. But there wasn't this situation where Christians would worship together in their homes and then their home was gone the next day because an invading army burned it all and raised it to the ground. And then, you see, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have caused... I mean, in the span of a couple hundred years, the gospel had went to everybody. How could that have been done without one language? Roads where you could travel anywhere quickly, efficiently, and safely, and peace. Is God smart or is he smart? The Roman peace. So, it was written in Greek. All right, that is, concludes this portion of our study. We're going to continue on next time with how we got the Bible. And I'm going to talk about the different types of manuscripts. I told you we had about 5,000 New Testament manuscripts. And, you know, the King James Bible was translated from basically that large volume of manuscripts The newer ones have focused more on the few older ones that we have. We're going to talk about that in great detail. We're going to talk about the difference between the great unseals and the cursives. Those are two different types of... The the writing style changed over the course of time. Unseals were all written in capital letters. And the cursives were written in cursive. 
and it just changed. So you can kind of date one of those documents based upon the exact writing style. We'll talk about that in more detail next Sunday morning. Any questions, comments? We've got about four minutes. If you've been looking for a moment to speak your mind, the time has come. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a language now. I mean, because you can study it and learn it. It is not. A, it is a dead language in that there is no culture in the world that is still currently using Koine Ancient Greek. The, the Greek spoke in, in Greece today is a different Greek than that, and that's pretty important too. Because providentially, that's important too, and I'll tell you why it's important. Because. We use words and they change. Um, you all know this is true. We used to use the word gay in a very... It didn't have any sort of connotation like it has now, right? Let's all be gay. I mean, that was a thing people would say before. But why does that make Sister Casebolt giggle now? If we'd said that in 1910, there'd be, nobody would think anything of it. Yeah, let's, let's have a great church potluck and all be gay at a church potluck. I mean, right? Why would that not be a problem? Because the word has evolved. The word has evolved. All languages evolve. English particularly badly, but all languages evolve if they're in use. God chose a language that was known by everybody in the world, but that as soon as the Roman Empire falls, it's not really spoken anymore. And so it's a language that, in which it didn't evolve. So now when we go to translate it 2,000 years later, guess what we can know for sure? What that word meant. We don't have to think, well, it meant this in, you know, 20, I mean, in, in 131, but it, then it became this totally opposite thing in 242. And then it became, see, we don't have to do that. Because it's a dead language, it didn't change. I think it's also very interesting that today, it's English is the universal language. One of the things that Diana and I have done is go off in a lot of places in the world and use the Bible yeah. Everybody wants to Yeah, that's true. However, I would say that's true, but I think we kind of think that our world is a little more advanced. Well, duh, that was a culture 2,000 years ago. But what's funny is there was a, English is known throughout the world, but Greek was definitely known by a higher percentage of people throughout the world than English is today. Because Greek, under the Greeks, who conquered the entire known world. Now, yes, there were people in the Western Hemisphere, what they would have called barbarians or primitives. There were barbarians in the far north reaches of Europe at the time and down in, deep into, into Southern Africa. But the entire educated known world, they had conquered and everyone knew Greek. Everyone knew Greek. So, 
Yeah, it's a, because you're talking about a very educated time in world history as well. More than today. I mean, we live in America, so we think we live in like the elitist, most elite part. But you go out throughout the world and see how many people are, how much illiteracy there is in the rest of the world. It, there wasn't much illiteracy at that time. In fact, you get into Europe, there's going to be so much more just three or four hundred years later. But not at that time. It was the perfect time. Love you.